When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Johnny B. Truant. <laughs> oh, wow. Welcome to the show, dude. Thanks for having yeah, me. On. I just start. Surreal. Have you noticed that? Yeah, like, I did notice that. I was like, oh, we're still bullshitting. And oh, no. I guess and we're then starting. immediately. So, yeah. it just for people who don't know, um, which is everybody because you're new to the show, and uh, Johnny B. Truant is your pen name. You are an author, a former genetics geneticist, PhD candidate yes. who was doing Drosophila, which is fruit flies, which I was doing, mm-hmm. and s- kind of saw the light that your story was not the story you were supposed to be living and changed it to become an author and a storytelling expert. And we somehow crossed paths mm-hmm. because you were watching. So how, how did you ever find me? And then I'll tell these guys why I'm talking well, about this you. Is a, it, it's a really weird story, honestly, because um, I am a storyteller. I mean, I do. I write stories for a living. I write scripts, and I have a TV show in production and all this stuff. And and so my friends know that I'm always kind of looking for weird stuff. <laughs> and I, wa- I, t- I wanted to do something. I like to do things that are kind of mind-bendery, like twisty. But I always like a basis in science. Uh, I want things to have a basis in reality. So Unicorn Western like that's a that one does not have a basis in reality but most do but like i think that you you can only get away with things that are outrageous if you have the baseline right so like if you're doing something on if you were doing a medical fiction book and you were like gave grizzly bear physiology before launching into something that had affected humans they'd be like well this guy doesn't even understand the difference between a human and a bear you know what i mean so i like a baseline level of reality which off of which to spin that's interesting because when I think about bears, I think that their livers are actually toxic to humans because of the high level of vitamin, vitamin A. I, I was going to complete it. I was oh, going to scoop were, you so on you that already, one. How did you, how did you know that? Because that is the one weird. Now, see, I remember polar bear liver. Is it all bears? Yeah, no, I think it might just be polar bear. Okay. And yeah. it was, it was, I remember that from high school chemistry class. It was one of those facts that you just remember. Like it became a thing. It became a meme in the school. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Everybody would be like, oh, dude, homie just ate a bunch of polar bear liver. Now he's yeah. orange. Yeah. and has uh, you know failure of various organs. But you know so, so that's interesting. So you and I connected because you were watching some of our content on consciousness, but you noticed that I'd said, oh, I'd worked in a Drosophila lab, a genetics lab at Berkeley and and we shared that weird past where both of us were doing fruit fly research and suddenly realized we don't want to do fruit fly research for a living, right? Um, no. No? Is that not what happened? <laughs> no, that's oh, not at all what, what happened. Oh, okay, because uh, I remember a weird but, uh, email about that. No, no. Well, what it, what, so basically what happened is, so just to continue the story with my friends, yeah, yeah. Um, one, my my friend Donna sent me your video with Hoffman. Oh, and yeah. it was this perfect thing I had described. Hoffman, I yeah. wanted to, well, no, her name isn't Hoffman, but she sent me Hoffman. Oh, right. I was just saying Don, Donald Hoffman. Hoffman, the video, so if people want to watch it yes. uh, about the nature of uh, reality. Case against reality. That's right. And so she was like, this, you know, you might be interested in this. I watched it and it was awesome. And and I didn't actually end up pursuing that story just yet, but then I did watch a few more of your videos. And you were doing the one with Bernardo Castro, which is one of my favorites. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, you said toward the end, you said, most people watch my my medical, my Z-Dog stuff, and probably like three people will enjoy this. So you've done like two hours of work with Castro. And at the end, you were saying, well, you know, like six people are gonna, and I, in the moment, 
okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you an email and let you know that I'm one of the people who really dug it. Ah. And so then we talked a little bit, and then I heard some other stuff. I think I heard the conscious computers one. I don't remember. You uh, uh, with Federico Fagine, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that time, I thought, you know, I'm just listening to these. We talked about this off camera, but there's something that gets stirred up and provoked when I listen to your videos. There's just something like a mind space, the Angelo videos, anything with consciousness. I just kind of get in a, a flow, and it occurred to me to say, I'll bet this guy would be interested in the story solution. So that okay, that makes sense because very quickly in our emails we started getting into fruit flies. But I'll say this. Mm-hmm. The first email you sent me, I get a lot of emails, right? And and you've, you've touched on something that's important to me. And I think my, my audience should understand this, that like, I'm interested in medicine because I've done a lot of medicine. Like I'm very conditioned in it. I think COVID is interesting for a bunch of different reasons from an educational perspective, a misinformation perspective, a connection and viewpoint perspective. How do we make sense of the world? But my passion is the stuff that you're talking about. So when I got your email, I didn't I didn't know who you were. You said, oh, I'm an author and had link and this and that, but you, you said what you were interested in. And I was like, that's what I'm interested in. It was like, it was like something out of mm-hmm. Step Brothers, right? Like, do we just become best friends? Yeah. <laughs> do we just become? So immediately I was like, oh, and there was something in, in the message. You just get a subtext. Like this person actually shares a deep desire to see truth and is seeing it from a totally different discipline, the idea of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I myself am quite fascinated with storytelling. I've had people on the show talking about this before. And I thought, well, now this is interesting. And then you said, well, I've done this book, The Story Solution. And you know, maybe you should, if you get a chance, you know, peep it out. It's just about story and why it's so important. And in fact, you've said things like, we can change the world through story. And I find that very compelling on an intuitive level and an experiential level. So then I listened mm-hmm. to you read the story solution on Audible. And I was like, this guy, this guy. So you were on your way up to do, you know, I think you're like doing like a crazy show about vampires for TV and you're going to Canada, right? Uh, yeah, NBC Universal bought the rights to my Fat Vampire series and they're, they're shooting that now. Okay, so- first of all, just the concept here, Fat Vampire. The idea that, a guy, tell me if I get this wrong, but to me, this is the most compelling pitch for a movie in the history of everything. Yeah. A guy is obese, right? Gets turned into a vampire as a a fairly obese and rather unhealthy person. And now he's that way for eternity. Is that the basic premise? That is the setup. Okay. But the larger world is we're dealing with the world that we actually have right now where vampires are all glamorous and, you know, they're all goth and tortured and they only twilight. come out. Yeah, twilight. They sparkle in the sun now apparently. <laughs> and so my, it's a fish out of water. It's a, a, an underdog story. Ah. So he um, isn't considered good enough by the fancy vampire elite and the council, you know, the vampire council wants to get rid of him. So we're he's – because I, the thing about this premise is like I always – I'm very aware of I don't want anyone to – it's not – I'm not like taking pot shots. Like this – he's the hero of the story um, because he, he's he's kind of the quote-unquote imperfect vampire according to their their lore. And so it's that story. And so they uh, they purchased it and they're up there and um, the the guy who plays Ned from Spider-Man, Jacob Batalon, is the lead. Wow. So um, that's going to be really cool. I'm going up there tomorrow. That is super exciting. And yeah. on the way, you just stopped here because we just got along so well on the phone talking about mm-hmm. life, philosophy, storytelling that you're like, hey, I'll stop by. And I said, please do. And let's do a show on story or anything we want, right? Yeah. Because one of the things that you, like, okay, the story solution, 
I think is so, it's very relevant for my own audience. And the reason that is, is that many of us feel trapped in someone else's story and we have no tools to understand how to build our escape. We don't have the explanatory tools to even understand the nature of our dilemma. And we certainly don't have a way out. And in your book, The Story Solution, you kind of diagram in, in a really beautiful, clear and personal way, because you say, hey man, I started out, with these fruit flies and this happened and there was this tension and that was act one. And then I was, you know, in the wrong genre perhaps like of my story. Like it wasn't so much the plot was wrong, but, and it, it, you got very granular on how to understand these elements of storytelling as applied to your own life. And why would this matter? This isn't just a philosophical exercise. It's mm -hmm. an exercise in transforming your life. When you say save the world through story, you're not joking because you save the world by also saving yourself because we create the world. So this idea that this arc of uh, tools, storytelling, because humans are narrative creatures, could actually be turned inwards on your own story and could transform your life mm -hmm. has been proven the case in your story. Now you're going to like Canada and doing this movie about a, a, a morbidly obese man. I don't know if he's morbidly obese. I just like to use the medical terms because I think fat is very shamey. He, he's, only, he's only mildly obese, but by <laughs> Hollywood standards. <laughs> By Hollywood standards, you know, Hollywood is twigs. That's so. true. So his BMI is like 25. Like he's like a little right, borderline. Right. right, right. And, but it's too much, right? It's too much. He's not council. perfect enough. He's not perfect enough for the council. So the council is just these chiseled, like, you know, Channing Tatum types. Yeah. 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 They're, they're Robert Pattinson type vampires. And, Got it. Or Anne Rice, you know, type vampires who want something Lestat, to look. Lestat. Mm -hmm. Like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. Totally. Mm-hmm. Why are vampires that way? Because you know, in reality, the vampires, the ones who are out at night getting in trouble, getting vampire sucked, is that the yeah. transformo genesis? I mean, it's gotta be self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, is it that the most emo people wanna become vampires because right. they're already kind of vampire-y? Or right. is it that you become that way after you're a vampire? Like, life doesn't matter anymore because I'm immortal? I mean, and but, but my feeling is the people who would end up at night in those situations would be the slightly obese misfits the less emo types, the more, you know, alcoholic Joe who's like struggling with his own story, who's trying to escape from it, you know? I like that we're conflating fat vampire and the story solution too. It's just a <laughs> harmony in my life. They're just interwoven. It's, it's interpenetrating yeah. is, yeah, the, is yeah, the term I use. Sure. Yeah, uh, and so when I listened to story solution, I thought, you know, this is actually a perfect model for the great resignation that we're experiencing now with COVID and everything, where people are waking up, they're like, shit, like things things have, pre-COVID, they were shitty. Intra-COVID, it just shined a spotlight on how I'm devalued, how I'm living someone else's story, how I don't feel like connected to purpose. Um, everything is off. It's a total fish out of water mm -hmm. again. And, but, but what do I do? I can quit my job, but then what's, the solution, like what's the next step? And when, when I listened to your book, I said, oh, this is a great, I mean, can you help us understand like- Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I mean, I think the purpose is the crux of it. So so the genesis of this story, I began this, the the book by talking about my story with the fruit flies and stuff. Mm. And the, this, the idea there was that I was, in the metaphor of the story solution, once we get into sort of like life events as applied to story, this was, Basically, this was a turning point. This was my the end of my act one where the hero decides to go on a new journey. But I actually wrote it years after that, after I'd been mm. a professional author for a while. 
Um, and so, and but what happened was that my position within the company had shifted. So my company is called Sterling and Stone. I helped co-found it. I am not running it anymore. I am an author at this point, but um, I, the, it's our tagline that's changed the world with story, but I used to be materially running that and we moved in the authorship position and it was, and it was during COVID. And so my world was changing and I wasn't getting out. And I fell into this kind of miasma of like, you know, I just wasn't ill at ease. And the idea of who am I, what is my purpose? It was, it was kind of a repeat of that earlier crisis with the fruit flies. And so in order to find, and this is something we can talk about too, I find the story by writing the story. I don't usually know it in advance. So in order to answer some of my own malaise, I wanted to write this book. And it was, I was talking to myself more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. I was my own ideal reader, which is another thing we can talk about. And so the idea is stories, okay, so there's a quote by, um, uh, why can't I remember who it is? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And he says, life is, uh, I'm sorry, drama is life with the boring bits cut out. I may be butchering that a little no, bit. No, that's, yeah, that's something something like that. Yeah. It's in your book, yeah. So the idea is that it's not that, life always has a story, but it's usually buried in noise. And so by being able to cut out, you know, if we watch a story about, uh, we, we just watched Dead Poet Society last night as a family. So, you know, we don't, we don't get um, Robin Williams characters like, you know, he's not at home eating breakfast. He, we don't watch him go grocery, shop for groceries. We don't watch, we don't watch him take a dump. We don't, yeah, yeah, we don't brush watch his any teeth. of that. Right. Isn't it interesting that we only watch the parts of the story that are relevant to this like purpose, this focused purpose of actually telling a story that needs to be told. So the story solution is an attempt to sort of impose that structure, or I would say uncover that structure ah. within an existing life because so many of us, I think we're in a culture it's hard to feel purposeful right now. It's easy to feel like you are being, you're in big social media's story, you're in your mother-in-law's story, you're in your employer's story, something like that. What is your story? You know, you're supposed to be the protagonist. And you know what, what it is very important what you said, I think, this idea that you wanna strip away that background noise of the mundane when you're thinking about your story. Because it is, we wanna see the highlights, we wanna see the, the the direction, we wanna see who are these characters, who are you surrounded with, what's the genre of the story. And to do that, you really have to strip away a lot of the fluff because we can get so buried in the details and the mundane details that we lose sight of the actual arc of the story. So when, when you're talking about and, and man, there's so much in the book, the ideal reader, the idea. So maybe let's start right at the beginning. So let's say you're having, you're in act one of your own story here. Let's say you're a, a, a nurse who during the pandemic realized that your employer doesn't value you, mm -hmm. that you're actually a deeply caring, passionate person, but you feel hamstrung by having to treat a computer screen instead of a patient, having to spend so much time clicking boxes to get paid that you're pleasing bean counters, but you're not actually connecting to the person there who's having the worst day or week of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's who you are. You know it in your marrow because that's what gets you out of bed. And now you're wondering, what should I do? How do you apply the, your sort of story solution um, kind of arc to this? Because I think that helps us to understand the components of story and where this all fits in. Yeah, so I mean, purpose was the, the main reason. I, I felt a little purposeless, I felt a little adrift. I think that it's easy for people to feel like they aren't really making a difference and that 
life just kind of goes on. But the core of it, the core attribute of everything is really uh, about conscious living. Mm. So more than anything, what you're doing is attempting to make choices consciously and within a larger reference rather than reacting um, either as uh, a YouTube algorithm wants you to react or as another person wants you to react, but saying that you are a protagonist in your own story. And and what I think, I mean, I think that the, the, the big thing to keep in mind here is that protagonists, if you're, if you're ever like reading a story or watching a movie, there's always this, uh, there are always these points where something terrible happens and the protagonist is, is not in a good place. And, and if you ever stop and think, that protagonist, what if I were in that protagonist's shoes? Well, you know, you're not. You're out watching it in a movie theater, and so you, everything will work out, right? Because it's a story. And so if you apply that same framework to yourself and you start making choices consciously as if you are in that spot and say, it's okay. It's okay that I'm in a bad spot. Like, it's okay. There are always ups and downs in any protagonist story. So you want to consciously turn in the direction of the the goals and the values that you've consciously decided. So that's a roundabout answer to that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But everything in that is, I mean, I talk about, what was interesting about the writing of this book was I had the framework of like the hero's journey. Yeah. So we're gonna be making decisions the way that a hero in a book would make decisions, that an author would make decisions for a hero in a book. But- once I started stripping out and saying, what are the phases of writing a book for us? What are the considerations? What are book terms? Mm. I found that they still, I was able to find something that applied for every single one, mm. which was surprising. So genre, choosing a genre actually has a, an equivalent. Tone, voice, um, you know, first, second, third act, supporting characters, uh, editing. These are all things that are important to, I think, a successful life's path. Well, so, so this is what really struck me about the book because like, for example, genre, mm -hmm. like knowing like what, <laughs> are you a romance novel? Are you a sci-fi novel? Are you a, an adventure novel? Are you a nonfiction? Like, well, what are you, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that's important because a lot of times we find ourselves stuck in the wrong genre entirely. And that can be a dramatic disconnect with what our character, because you said, what's their mm -hmm. purpose? What's their values? What are their attributes? Um, the, the idea of supporting characters, like who do you have around you that is influencing your story? And are they people that are actually consistent with the narrative arc that you're interested in or the purpose or the general direction you wanna go in? Or do you need to do some editing? <laughs> or, or did they give you, so the, the purpose of a supporting character, see, I think that the, the biggest thing to keep in mind here is this, a story is intelligently designed. Not that I'm trying to pull a buzzword or anything, but you know, it, it is, it is. The mind of the author has a very specific trajectory. Most people act like their paths in life are at the whim of something. You know, oh, well, my boss needs me to do this or, oh, my kids need me today or reactive, something like that. Reactive, Right, yeah. and it's like you are the author of your own story. So if you move in that direction and you, you have that mindset, you'll start to see things like supporting characters. So in the framework of a story, a supporting character's job, the reason that we put them there in that design I was talking about, because it's, it's not accidental. We deliberately put them there to reflect something within the protagonist. Mm. So an example I give in the book is that we had a really hard-nosed protagonist and we couldn't show his soft spot overtly early on. And if we had just kept him as frankly a real asshole, then nobody would want to follow him and see his story evolve. So we gave him a sister that was not in the original plan because she called him on his shit 
She was able to, she knew him forever. She knew where his wounds were. She knew why he was the way that he was. Mm. But you can't have a character get in front of the, you know, the literary camera and go, guess what? I am actually secretly soft inside. Uh, You need a foil. uh, And some of our supporting characters are feeding us into a life that we don't want. So uh, if you had, in the example of the nurse who maybe doesn't want to be a nurse anymore, if you have competitive, a competitive family for whom achievement means something different for them than it does for you, that's going to drive you. Uh, If you have, um, uh, because those are your supporting characters, if you have coworkers who are really fun, maybe they actually make it better for you. Maybe maybe you're you're getting a social connection because of the supporting characters that you put around you. You know, I I know nothing about medicine, but if you're in, maybe you're working in the ER, uh, I'm going to say something really stupid and you're going to be like, that's not how medicine works. Probably not. You watch enough TV. So if you're, you know, if you're working in the ER, maybe that's just a little, maybe the doctors, they're real manic. I don't know. I'm just making this up. Uh, Yeah, you're right. But maybe in pediatrics, they're more your speed. Mm -hmm. So you're still doing medicine, but maybe those, the characters in that group are, or you have an extracurricular group, you know, like you're doing consciousness and meditation stuff too. You have a group of network network that's outside of medicine. Those are your supporting characters that are giving you something that you need. That, see, this is, and again, I, I just have to tell people they gotta read this book because it's so clear that you struggled through this yourself. Like that book was an emergent property of you opening a hole in the universe and this book coming out and saying, okay, this is how I even look at myself and how I'm continuing to look at myself, my own story. Who are my supporting characters? What genre? What editing do I need to do? There, there, and there's, and we're not even doing it the book justice because there's so many elements of story that you bring up. You. You mentioned the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Like this is an archetypal longing of humans. Like if you watch, you know, Bill Moyer's thing with Joseph Campbell, like this hero's journey transcends culture. It is, you know, the hero leaves home, goes all these struggles, and ultimately it's a return trip where they come back awake, uh, living their story. And we think that this is all, oh, these are models and this and that. No, no, it is a distinctly human experience because we're creating our stories as we mm-hmm. go. We're, challenge, we're channeling them. You can't, you can overplan this stuff, but in reality, it's much clearer to open to the story as it comes out authentically, mm-hmm. but having, having your structure where you say, okay, but here are some tools to structure this chaos that's coming you know, from the opening you made in the universe mm-hmm. in a way that actually can get things done in in this world, I think is very powerful. Well, a story has a purpose. Like if we're thinking about the stories that we consume, they have a central theme that they're driving. So they're they're usually trying to get some sort of a theme across, usually not overtly, unless you're hammering people with it, which I'm not a fan of. Um, But it means that it's very deliberately put together to support that larger story. So when we we begin with a protagonist or several leading characters and they always need something and they always have a wound. Mm-hmm. And there's always that primary driving thing that they, I'm sorry, there's actually three because there's what they want, what they need and what their wound is. Mm. So usually in act one of a story, for instance, um, it's the everyday normal that somebody is is in, that the character is in and they're basically operating from their wound. So if they uh, feel insecure, then they might be trying to please a parent, something like that. You're, you're operating with that as your operating system is the wound that you have. So so for in the nurse example, and I'll just interject mm-hmm. yeah. some of these, in a nurse example, you have a uh, young 
a man or woman who had a traumatic event as a child where mm -hmm. they were either abandoned or injured or abused, and now they're operating from the sense of wanting to protect others or nurture others as a way to heal themselves. Yeah. So maybe that's their their uh, wound. Yeah, that could be, that, That's actually, that's exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about. I mean, for my example, it was less traumatic. It was, um, I wanted to be the best. Like that was something, and that it was a wound in a weird way because I'm sure it became, I'm sure it came from some childhood inadequacy. You know, I'm sure that I like got bullied once or something, or I just never felt that I was good enough. And so I wanted to be, I mean, I don't know. These are subconscious things. This yeah. is what you, you plunge into. It's our conditioning. Work. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for me, I, I thought I wanted to be the best and that drove me to uh, enroll in a grad school program because what's the best? PhD. Yeah. And, and then when I realized that well, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense. My actual, that's what I thought I wanted. That was my want. But what I needed was, um, well, I needed to, I needed to create, I needed to express myself. Mm -hmm. I needed to be a creator. I've always wanted to be a creator. And so if, if you think consciously about what it is, if you, as if you were a character, what are the, what are the, what would be a good character arc for you? You mm -hmm. know, does it make sense for you to, um, to overcome, you know, your troubled past? Does it make sense for you to change the world? Does it make sense for you to um, be a beacon of light in the world? You know, these are all possible things that if you were to tell a story rather than just going through life, what do you want your life to stand for? What is that story arc? And in that, oh man, there's, there's so much in this because you could think about like years of therapy just to uncover what are your wants? What are your needs? What's your wound, mm -hmm. right? But sometimes it's right there. It's staring at you in the face, right? That, mm -hmm. that you know, like you said, you, you, your desire to be the best. I had a very similar arc, which mm -hmm. was like, there must've been something happens. I mean, you can kind of point at it, you can find it, it's there, but there's probably deeper stuff that we're repressing too that happened that you're just like, okay, mm -hmm. so this is now a driver of what I want. I, I, I have to be the best or I have to accomplish, or I, I, you know, the supporting characters in my life really also are reinforcing this pattern of behavior because they're expecting these certain things, whatever it's immigrant parents or whatever it is they want from you. And, um, but what I need is actually quite different because my authentic self is a different thing. And mm -hmm. maybe I'm not even in touch with that, but I feel the disconnect. I feel the dissonance in the form of suffering or a sense that something isn't right. Um, and maybe some of this comes from the wound or maybe some of it is unrelated. Does that feel right to you? And I think so. Yeah. I mean, act two of a story. So mm -hmm. I know that I'm kind of skipping around, but well, hey, so, that's how we roll. So, so yeah. act one is that kind of setup of like, they're living their life and there's something wrong. Act one is usually um, the, the everyday, usually you begin by establishing their everyday world. It could be anything. Mm. Um, so I, I like to use, I don't know if I did this in the book, but I, when I've taught this, I taught this at my daughter's school once. So the Lego movie, right? So yeah. if we've all, if we've seen the Lego movie, like Emmett believes that the way to, that what he wants is to be part of a team and that the way to do that is to follow the instructions, right? You keep doing. And so that's him <laughs> trying to get to where he wants using what he uh, knows. And then at the end of act one is uh, some sort of a crisis point where there's an opportunity to go on an adventure. That's the classic call to, to adventure from the hero's journey. So for Emmett, it's when he finds the, what is it? The piece of resistance. It's been a while right, since that, I've that seen that it. sacred piece or whatever, yeah. The thing that's at the top of the crazy glue. Right, Sorry, right. spoiler for the Lego movie. <laughs> and then act two is all about the protagonist attempting to get what they now know that they want using the means that they've always used. Aha. There's a change that happens somewhere in act two, usually toward the end, um, where 
you re- the protagonists realize that unless they change, unless they adopt a new internal belief, mm-hmm. that they're never going to be able to actually get what they want. And so in the Lego movie, it's when he realizes that he needs to basically walk to the beat of his own drum, right? Mm-hmm. And that's after, I, again, I know I'm skipping around, but the yeah. Battle of Cloud Cuckoo Land, that right at the middle of the movie, if you look at that, it's like right down the middle. That's the midpoint mm. where everything changes. And what happens in that moment is everybody, including Emmett, learns that he is not the special. Uh-huh. And so the second half of the movie, the second half of act two and then into act three, he has to internalize that knowledge and then work with it rather than working from his old delusions and his old beliefs that I need to be like everyone else to be special. Dude, <laughs> <laughs> this is archetypal, deep, ancient stuff in humans. Like mm-hmm. really feel into that. Like act one, life as usual, the setup, a crisis, call to adventure. Mm-hmm. Act two, going into that adventure with your old beliefs and set in your ways of how you've done things always. Mm-hmm. Crisis in act two, wait, no, it isn't this way. You may not be this way. And in order to succeed, you've got to change. Another crisis going into act three. Mm-hmm. This is every single, if you talk to successful people who've had career changes, they've all gone through this. Like it's almost like, it's like almost a formula, mm-hmm. right? Because it is, it's the hero's journey. It's the story. It's, it, 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 you know, I cannot, like my own story, th- th- that's it. Now I'm no hero. I'm still figuring it out. In fact, there's, there's multiple reboots, multiple sequels where it's like, what am I doing now? Oh my gosh, this is not what I, my, my whole belief about reality is altered. I mean, that's how we connected, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you look at what Donald Hoffman's doing, he's challenging our very belief about the nature of reality, the fundamental operating paradigm that humans use, that everything is stuff mm-hmm. and we're somehow emerging from stuff. Well, what if that wasn't true? <laughs> what if everything was mined? What would you, how would you see the world then? How would you act? How would you do science? How would you do medicine? It's a total shift, but most people then are struggling with that. That's like that late act two kind of like, what? The right. matrix, same thing. You, you don't, what you thought was reality isn't, isn't real. This is tremendously ancient, powerful stuff. And I think we ignore it at our peril. So anyway, so back to you, I just, it gets me excited because when I, again, when I listened to the book, that's where I was like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of intersections. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I don't know if we want to go down this rabbit hole yet. Do it. I think that, uh, and we talked a little bit about this. I, I, I feel, so I'm a big fan of like the Angelo DeLulo stuff. Hi, Angelo. Hey. Um, you know, and, and, How you doing, and, and Hoffman and Kastrup and, and, uh, Fajin Fajin and, and, yeah. and like all those guys. I thought that those are great. Those are great sequence. The mystical warriors. The mystical warriors. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, they, they I, I just I don't know where I was going with that. I, I went on off on a tangent and then I forgot what the ta- oh I know what it was. Is that is that being a storyteller has I think to some degree it's helping me to wake up to use the the uh, Angelo terms because it forces you to examine things in a way th- that people normally don't. So if, if like for instance the bad guys I understand all the bad guys everybody who we say like okay well these in real life these people are on the other side. The way that I've been saying it is it, it, I'm not as much fun to argue on the same side of as as I think some people wish. Like, oh, those X, Y, Z people are really terrible. And I go, well, no, wait a minute. Hold on. From their perspective, they're the hero and you're the bad guy. You're the antagonist. You're the one who's got it wrong. And I think that being able to lift up out of your existing life and then peer down on it as if it was a story. So like just to be clear – there are ways in which I believe that life is literally a story, but that's not what I'm talking about here. 
and if you if you did look at it, and you, like this is especially helpful if you're in crisis, right? Mm. You're at the low of uh, the dark night of the soul. Yeah, you know we talked about that, which is right toward the end. Um, especially in romances, there's always a dark night of the soul, like this period of contemplation, or you're at the end of your act one and it's really hard. You're trying to embark on this new journey or you're at the midpoint and something just crushed you. Mm. It's so easy to feel hopeless. Mm. It's so easy to be like, well, the dream is over. Well, that didn't work. Wow, I lost, I wasted half of my life. But if you, you say, if you ask this question, if you say, if I were an author of this story, of my own story, Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also want to hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at ZDogMD.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we gonna transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. Well, now, wait a minute. Ups and downs are actually required for the growth of that protagonist. They're not even, it's not even that they're not bad, they're actively good. Mm. And if you're able to do that with your own story, I, I mean, I don't know, it's helped me through a lot. Dude, it's a total reframing of crisis tragedy. And when people study people who are resilient in the face of trauma, this is a common, that Jonathan Haidt has written about this in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. So who are the people that, are the most resilient in trauma versus the people who end up, you know, going down a, a, a very dark path of, of post-traumatic stress and so on. And it's, some of this is biochemical, some of it is psychological, some of it is social, it's very complex. But the people who are the most resilient are able to outline out what's going on in my story and re make find a sense of, okay, there's a direction, there's a purpose in this. I find a meaning in this tragedy and they use it as a strength moving forward. Mm -hmm. It's still painful. It's still not something you wanna relive all the time, but it's something that gives them then that energy. And it's exactly that. It's that sense of perspective. When you said waking up, you know, that again, that's the jargon that we use that says, oh, realizing what our real identity is. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, this is a story on a screen that's playing out that we're lost in, that we think this is everything, this story. But in reality, we're actually the light and the screen <laughs> at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's unchanging and, and, and it can watch the story without so much identity being bound in it that we're unable to see our way out of it. And, and that bit of distance is waking up. It's recognizing mm -hmm. what our identity is and then watching the story and going, hey, you know what? If I were writing this story, I might think that that 
car accident that left me with this disability and this chronic pain is actually a huge opportunity mm -hmm. to connect with what I am as a character, which is a nurturer, which means I can help others who've gone through this. And then maybe that's a career direction there. Maybe you become a physical therapist, maybe you become, you know, whatever it mm -hmm. is. So, but it requires that degree of meta awareness, yeah? Yeah, and that's really hard to do. You know, is, we're yeah. all in our own drama. We all feel that this terrible thing just happened to me and therefore the whole world is coming to an end because I'm the most important. I mean, nobody thinks this consciously, but everybody feels that they are the center of the world, right? Yeah. You know, nobody else, well, they're, they're kind of, I guess it's in theory, those people are real people living their story, but it's really all about me. Like that's kind of how we operate. Um, but once you can, if, if, I mean, introspection is a huge part of this. Mm. The more self-curious you are, I talk about the need to kind of keep a journal or talk out loud to yourself. I will yeah. talk out loud to myself. Yeah, it's a workbook that you've written really. It's like keeping a journal, talking out loud. Yeah. You had other other very direct pointers, like this is how you inquire into what's actually happening. Yeah, if you ask yourself, what is it that I want? This is one of many examples because I think the genre one is actually really interesting. There's a bunch that I think I think are interesting to Theme, ask. Theme, yeah. Mm -hmm. Theme is really interesting. But if you ask yourself, what is it that I'm currently going after? And then you ask yourself, what do I want from that? This is one of the distinctions that I make. So when I was... So I, I don't know that we clarified exactly my story, but I did. I, did we actually even tell the story? No, you got to tell. Yeah, it. we didn't yeah. even tell the story. Yeah. So I um, basically I was I was valedictorian in my high school. A, a lot of my identity was locked up in being a very good student uh, because I wasn't. I mean, I'm reasonably athletic now. I wasn't as a kid, and 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 so my identity largely came from being being smart. Yeah. And so, and not that I was never pushed. I, I don't have parents who are real demanding and Type A. But but that said, I did get. Praise, you know, from everybody, understandably, for being smart. And so it logically made sense. When I went into college, I told my mom, I'm going to be valedictorian in Ohio State. And she said, oh, God, please don't do that because you'll never have any fun. Oh, wow. Trying to be – I mean, Ohio State is enormous, so I tried to be – forget it. Wise choice, mom. Thank you very much. Uh, but then I did do very well, you know, summa cum laude, everything. And so it just made sense that I would go to grad school and I would get a PhD because that's what the best is. Right. When I, when I started doing that, after about six months, I started having panic attacks. This is the short version. And I didn't know what they were. And it was life's way of basically saying, hey, if, you don't, if you're not going to stop on your own, if you're too dumb to figure this out, then I'm going to give you physiological markers that are going to make it impossible for you to move forward because you feel like a basket case. And so I then backed away. Now, so where I'm going with this, like what you want and why you want it is I thought I wanted significance. I thought I wanted to be the best. And if you actually like from that perspective we were saying where you kind of rise up and you look down on yourself objectively, that's an absurd thing to go after because it's so externally validated. Mm. Like what what is there in in it for me to be the best? That doesn't make any sense. Mm. I can't be the best. There's just too many people in the world. I mean, maybe I could be the best in my certain niche of storytelling, maybe. But there's so many things I'm not going to be the best in. But then what did I actually want from that? Well, I wanted, and I tell this story a little bit too, is I actually, I'm a fiend for uh, optimizing. Mm, that's right. So it's not that I wanted to be great. It's that I wanted to get better. Progress, yes. And so I can get that without going through all this bullshit. Yeah. I mean, did I, I don't know if I told this story, um, but my dad, I think I did tell this story in the book. So my dad was a real high paced, 80s guy with the convertible and the you know big gelled hair. I mean, he, Max Hedrum. Yeah, I yeah. mean he was he was you know he was 80s 80s money guy, 
And all he wanted to do was to make art, like he's a painter, and play his guitar. That's right. But he had to do this because that was his conditioning from his childhood is you need to make something of yourself. And so he needed to get to the point where he was able to do well enough with his work that he could then stay home, play his guitar, and paint. Mm. And there was some point where he realized, boy, I can cancel out the common factors here, not do the job, <laughs> downsize to like a pauper's life, yeah, because then I have all day to paint and to play my guitar. Love. Yeah, you know, but but if you if you can't get past that and you can't see what's an easier, more direct way to get to what I want, rather than this ridiculous thing that I'm doing right now, you know, it takes that external sight to get there. You, you, there's so much in what you just said that I think is important. One of them is the warning signs that your very own body will give you. Mm -hmm. Like the physiologic response, the yeah. panic attacks. I can't tell you how many people message me and you can feel the anxiety and the panic. And and oh, again, I think a lot of it is the emotion body, the physical body is sending up warning signals that like, this is not what you need. Like you're lying to yourself and they're trying to get your attention, but we're mm -hmm. so good since young, young, young age. At, and Angelo writes about this in his book. And again, this is where all these things kind of collide, right? The idea of waking up, finding our identity, having that meta-awareness of what's actually happening. Yeah, Angelo writes that we're taught from a very young age to repress emotion, to repress these physiological tendencies that are, that are they're, they're like car alarms warning you like, dude, Look here, mm -hmm. look. And you're like, well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna tell a story about that. You know, I, I'm a guy who I'm very high functioning. So I get these occasional palpitations, you know, because I'm just I'm adrenalized. It's like, bro, your your pits are sweaty, you're tachycardic, you're 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 clammy whenever you you know you and this is this was me all through med school. Like mm -hmm. my body was telling me, bro, like there's something in this path that is not ultimately where you're gonna land. Like there's something about this, right? And for me, it was the going to clinic every day, seeing 30 patients, the uh, charting, charting, charting bureaucracy, the reducing a human being who's suffering to a pill or a procedure. Like I knew it, I, the body knew this was not, this is not it. But the mind was like, just get through this, you'll figure it out, don't worry. Like you just, it, it all seems to work out. These, these guys are fine, right? You don't know they're fine. <laughs> they're the same. They're putting on the same front. They're putting on the same front. So not listening, and I had no meta awareness at the time. You know what I had is I had a little bit of probably what we share, which is that egoic component of, you know what? I'm better than this. I will figure it out at some point. I'm smart enough. Mm -hmm. I've worked hard enough. It'll all just click. And you know what? That's true to an extent until it's not. <laughs> at some <laughs> point you just have to surrender and be like, dude, I, I just need to look at this clearly. What was your favorite part about what, what what did you go into medicine for? What was your driving love? Like, what did you just, when you got into it and it was like, this is what I'm here for? It was the connection with other people. It was like that uh, idea that you you get to, dude, people will open up to you. They, mm -hmm. will t they will bear like chest open, literally chest open, figuratively chest open, just pure love with another human in a sacred space. And the the idea that it would be fettered by you know, bureaucracy and reductionism and all this left brain bullshit 
to me at the time was just like, no, 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 that's just science. That'll work itself out. Mm -hmm. It's the love here that you just intuitively know. And I couldn't have put it in words at the time. You know, you would have written your med school admission essay. Like this is the med school admission essay. That application essay is like a, a story you're writing about yourself. Yeah. Like, this is who I am. Like, let me tell you this story. And this is the character and this is what he's done. And this is why he cares. Mm -hmm. And in a way it is your aspirational story you maybe you've thought it out maybe you haven't but it is it's it has a lot of element of truth you know so look at what you're doing now like is this not the most direct way to connect to people and to get the the core thing that you wanted without all that unnecessary expense and time and stress <laughs> like this is the direct main line into it but i think that we 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 tend to take a path that we're like okay so i want this well, that's the path to it, that path right there that has been well-trodden by everybody else. Probably not the only way. Mm. You know, I mean, if I wanted to optimize, if I wanted to have, like, I, I honestly, that was, that was momentum. Like, mm. I feel like I need to tell the ham story. I haven't told the ham story on this show, and I tell it on a lot of things. So can I tell the ham story? I, I like this ham story already. Do you know the ham story? No, I, I tell don't. You on the phone? Okay, so it basically, there, there's a story, this is a parable, I don't know that it literally happened or anything like that, but this, this is one of those things that people tell, um, is, okay, so there's a, we're at a family dinner, you know, not we, you're just imagine there's a family dinner, and it's multi-generational, it's like Thanksgiving or something, and uh, the kid, one of the kids, is in the, uh, the kitchen with whoever's making the, the ham, and um, the, the, the cook, so like, let's say that's mom, cuts off the end of the ham before baking it. And the kid says, mom, why do you, why do you cut the end off the ham? I say, well, that's, that's the way grandma does it. And so why did grandma do it? Well, let's go ask. Grandpa's right, grandma's right out here. So they go out to grandma and they say, hey, grandma, why did you cut the end off the ham? Well, that's the way my mom always did it. And then, okay, well, why did she do it? And so they went to then the great-grandmother who says, oh, well, because my oven was too small. And you realize that they've been <laughs> perpetuating this thing because it was something that was always done. And I think that that's one of the things that we do. So I think as a large, I mean, overgeneralizing, I'm realizing I'm talking to doctors here and I'm, that I'm, I'm about to put my foot in my mouth, maybe. But I do think that's an achiever culture. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. And so- All of healthcare. A lot of people, I'm sure, have very straightforward reasons that they want to be in healthcare that, that are not confused and foggy at all. But I'll bet a lot. It's about that is widely considered to be the career you get if you want to be impressive, right? Yep. A doctor. That's classically like, oh, you got to be a doctor. Any Jewish mom would agree. It's the perfect. So if you want to be impressive, what's behind that? What is the root cause? Is it validation? Is that what you want? Or do you want connection with other people? What is the root thing? Because nobody wants to be, be a doctor. That's not a thing. Like you either like the procedure, you like connecting with people, you like making a difference, you like healing, you like red tape and bureaucracy. <laughs> it's never the thing. It's never the career. It's what you think you will get from the career. Mm. And mm. that's what I think it requires is I was getting something. One of the things that I talk about in the book is if you want to really distill what it is that you want in life and, and should go after is to ask yourself, what is this terrible thing doing right for me? What am I actually getting out of that's where I am right, right that's now? That's right. You say that in the book. Yeah. So you, there's something that's serving you in that. And you, if you have to suss out, well, it's because it, it's an ego gratification or something. And then are there other ways to get that thing? Man, 
so so I, I think you're really cutting at the heart of like what a lot of, I mean, it doesn't matter, forget about medicine, although medicine is a great example because it is an achiever culture. There's also something Angelo calls um, the refined ego of the say physician culture. Mm. But what he means by that is that this is, so there's egos and there's egos. So there's some very coarse egos that are just looking you know, to, for self-aggrandizement or validation or whatever. And then there's refined egos, which have had an entire lifespan to, an ego is really, it's not a thing. It's an operating system. It's a kind of a software that runs on the human hardware that like, it gives us a sense of like, I'm a self moving through the world. I have these values, I'm separate. I, I achieve this, these are what I, what's important to me and so on. But the refined ego of the physician is one that, can have these very nuanced conversations and can kind of introspect to a degree and can kind of understand and you know and it's it's very highly intelligent and so on but if you actually poke it right in the deepest part of whatever's wounded or mm. whatever is um not seeing that this is for this type of validation or there's a deep unhappiness or there's a dissatisfaction it will shut down in a incredibly blunt and aggressive way and so Angelo actually encounters this when he talks to other physicians who are, uh, say, not interested in spirituality or awakening or anything, mm -hmm. and he'll start just talking about it. And they'll they'll go with, him, oh yeah, it's really interesting, mindfulness. And then all of a sudden it's like, vroom, just mm -hmm. a wall, like you're insane, We're, this conversation's over. Whereas others who are starting to crack and are getting that meta awareness and are starting to use the kind of approach in your book where you're looking at the story and going, wait, what is it that I'm actually getting out of this that is valuable to me? And then the other stuff is editable, like, mm -hmm. you know? They are the ones that very quickly start to unravel that and find that it's exactly, like when you pointed at me, like it was a little scary, like, so what are you doing now? Well, you're connecting with people through this thing. I thought, oh shit, that's <laughs> that's why I love what I do. Right, right, right. Right, and that's why I, I only want to talk about things I care about, like this stuff, right? Like, uh, because I know that I can share that with someone who cares about it too in a very intimate way. It's mm -hmm. a kind of intimacy that transcends the, the camera and all of that. Um, and that's what I got in medicine until it became clear that there was so much other stuff. And there is a part of it, like if I'm introspecting on myself, because it's always about me, bro. We're right, talking no, about no. a refined ego. If it's not about you, it's about me. I mean, <laughs> like 90% of the stuff is clearly about the two personalities in this room. As it should be. Yeah. And um, because we're the best, mm. okay? And so if you're really looking at me, the wound, whatever that is, requires uh, a validation, external validation, uh, a sense of feeling like I belong, acceptance, that kind of thing. Medicine was really good for that because you get all the external validation in the world. You know what's interesting is I think if it, for me in medicine, if it hadn't become clear that the external validation even wasn't worth it, or it was actually starting to go away because there was so much mechanization of medicine that, that even that story started to fall apart then it's like, what do I have now? Mm -hmm. Like the connection's not there because I can't spend time with patients. I'm too busy looking at the chart. You know, that inflection point was when our electronic health record went live because now we were documentation monkeys instead of being able to spend mm -hmm. time in the room. And then when they took away my residents, the people I trained, that team-based dynamic of other humans that I was mentoring started to evaporate. And then it just became, the, the meaning was sucked away. Mm -hmm. And then if I hadn't looked at that story and said, this is, this is the end of act one. This is this is where I need to go on an adventure. Um, I would have still been in act one. Mm -hmm. And I, I would have probably developed some kind of drinking problem or substance abuse problem. I would have had marital difficulties, all the things that come, the epiphenomenon, physical health mm -hmm. problems, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I think genre is actually a really good maybe thing to talk about about this point because I think it's it's easier for people to understand. Mm. So genre, I mean, just to clarify for everybody, plot is just one element. You can tell the same plot, the same basic plot in many different genres. So you could have a heist movie. I'm just making this up so this might not make any sense. We'll find out. You could have a heist movie that is uh, a romance. Okay, so again, I'm kind of pulling out of my hat here, but I seem to remember the Thomas Crown affair having a large romantic element, even though it's not a romance, okay? But you could have, or it can be Ocean's Eleven with an ensemble cast and nobody's more important than anybody else, but it's about everybody getting together. Um, Heist maybe isn't the best example, but the same plot can be in a horror story or whatever. It's still the same pieces, Mm. but the genre is the way that it's told. So what are sort of the... The, the the tropes that are inherent to a genre. So a trope is a repeating element. If you're telling a zombie story and you don't have the horde advancing on a city or a bunch of people that are closed in with shotguns at the board, that's a trope. And, and, and you're missing something because people that are in that genre understand that choosing that genre, the, the zombie horror genre, requires that trope. And it, it requires, um, there are tonal differences, there are um, all sorts of things that go with it. There are expected scenes. But if you, we actually have a zombie story where we didn't have mobs advancing. And guess what? It's a zombie story, but it's not a zombie story. The genre is wrong. It's actually a thriller because we didn't do the genre things, even though it's the same plot piece. Yeah. And so I, I, let me talk a little bit about genre therapy because I know I mentioned this in the book. Yeah, yeah. So we had, and, and keep in mind, I'm going to come around to the, because you're like, well, let's talk about stories. Well, this applies, these same things are with real life. No, I'm like, I'm on the edge you're of my seat, man. I'm eating popcorn. Keep okay, going. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> so we we have this process that we we run. I, I'm in a story studio. So there's a bunch of authors that we work together. There's 12, I think around 12 of us right now. And um, when we bring people in, we do this process called genre therapy. And with since we're authors, it's literal genres, okay? But if you're just an average everyday person and you aren't an author, we're talking about the genre kind of of your life, which hopefully I can connect these dots here live. Let's see. And so we had this author who wanted to write sci-fi. This is one example I give in the book. And she, uh, because she was really into Star Trek The Next Generation, there were a few, Firefly, like there were a few sci-fi shows that she was really, really into. And so she thought she wanted to write sci-fi. Well, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. She wasn't getting the work done. She kind of couldn't get into the nitty gritty of like, there's some research sorts of things that happen to happen with sci-fi. That's a certain style of writing as a genre, sci-fi as a genre. And so as we go through this process, we try to suss out what is it about that genre that a person wants? So we don't say, do you want to write sci-fi? We say, do you want to write sci-fi? Okay, yes, and then immediately detour to why. Mm. What is it about sci-fi? So it turned out that what she wanted from writing sci-fi was the sense of grand adventure. She liked um, casts that were diverse people that were all coming together for a common goal. Uh-huh. So Battlestar Galactica, I guess, has a little bit of this. Um, Foundation, you know, like there's there are plenty of stories that don't, but Star Trek and Firefly were both these kind of motley, multiracial, multi-background characters, and there was camaraderie that was involved. And so it was a certain certain tone of sci-fi. And when we asked her what other entertainment she was interested in, i.e. not just sci-fi like Star Trek, they were things like, rather than Battlestar Galactica, they were like Ella Enchanted. 
<laughs> the Princess Diaries, right? So the, the long and short of it was that she needed to be write, writing young adult fantasy, which contains those same things she liked, these, these motley crews of people that are coming together, this fantastical element. So sci-fi, you have to explain the magic. That's the difference between sci-fi and fantasy. In sci-fi, you have to explain the magic. Otherwise, they're the same. Yeah. And she what didn't want to explain it. She just liked the magic. And so doing young adult fantasy hit all of those buttons, and then she was able to write it like that. Wow. And so I think that that's the argument we were just trying to make, is that people are in a wrong genre. So I wanted significance. Despite a lot of introspection, that's part of my personality. Apparently, I just need to be significant. Mm -hmm. But I now have a TV show. I have readers who read my books. Like I found my significance in a totally different way than Counting Fruit Flies. And Dude, I think that that's what you need to do. You actually uh, managed to pull all that together. I'm, I'm usually a pretty good circle talker. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, okay, so th there's, there's a lot there. Okay. Th okay, that genre, genre therapy, I love that. I love that. And, and that's why, again, I think people really should read your book. But that, that idea of sitting down and going with your authors and saying, okay, well, you guys are actually authors, so let's be literal about this. Mm -hmm. Like, what genre are you gonna write? We can all do that with our lives. What's important? Like, what's it? You, you wanted significance. I wanted whatever that connection or that teaching element was. Um, and so what genre was I in? Medicine. And that worked for a while, actually, because I got a lot of that element, but then it didn't work because the genre changed, mm -hmm. actually. And that was a big piece of it. The mm -hmm. genre, many people who are in medicine don't realize the genre has had its rug pulled out. It's no longer a vampire story. It's a freaking zombie story. Like they, they changed it when we weren't looking and we were complicit in it because we went along for the ride because we were getting paid. Mm -hmm. And now it's a different story and yet we're, we're trying to shoehorn the old um, us into this into this genre that doesn't fit. So looking introspectively and going, ah, are there other genres that fit me better, mm -hmm. different careers, different ways of being that actually fulfill those needs, right? That would change your life. And I think that this is probably, if I'm putting myself in the reader, the listener's shoes right now, the viewer's shoes, they're probably like, Okay, well, that's really cool, but what the hell does genre mean in terms of in life. life? Yeah. So the example that I give is, um, so if you want a really fun down the rabbit hole experience that has to do with story and not necessarily life stuff, just to get an idea of what, what I'm talking about here. Mad Libs. Well, TV Tropes. Oh. Have you gone there? Have you gone to tvtropes.org? No. You will lose a day. Oh my gosh. So a trope, again, is a repeating element that's almost a cliche, right? So the fact that it's not overused is what makes it a trope instead of a cliche. I see. So, and some of them are plenty overused. So, so like Three's Company, like the trope is there's always a misunderstanding. Yes. Right. There's always a misunderstanding in, that's exactly the one I would have picked for Three's Company. There's always a misunderstanding. Do you remember that? Uh, there's a scene in Friends. Well, I think this is the episode of Three's Company where there's a misunderstanding. <laughs> oh, then I've seen this one. Um, it's but, all of them. You know, in my my genre of biological sciences building at Case Western University, counting um, fruit flies, was studious. Like it was, it was this. It, it had this studious vibe. It had a serious vibe. It had a driven vibe. The mm. people who were doing it were very driven. Um, my my, it's like the feeling. Like what what's the what's the vibe of the story you're telling? Where would you be shelved in a bookstore? Right. So it, there's not dick jokes in that vibe. And that's exactly what I needed. 
You know, I needed the trope of dick jokes. Of course it was. And I would make just <laughs> dumb jokes to the people at, at the lab and they just look at me like I was an idiot. And now it's just like, it's enough to where, okay, we got to watch what we say because, you know, bro, you don't want to go too far. Please, right. please. This is the story of my life is making dick jokes on rounds at, you know, Stanford <laughs> and just having like a couple of interns snickering at me and the rest of them just looking mortified. It just was not the genre that fit who I was. So please continue. Well, that, I mean, that's basically all there is to it is, yeah. is you can tell the same story in an atmosphere that's fun and lighthearted and ridiculous, which by the way, for some people is entirely wrong. I'm not meaning to say right, that this right, is a right. virtuous choice, right? but for me it was. Right. Some people, like those, those folks in the lab, it's not like I made the right choice and they made the wrong one. It's not like I figured it out and they didn't. They were right for that genre. Yeah. They were the kind of people who wanted to put in a lot of time and be very serious about their work. I did not. Well, so it's really interesting because this idea of tropes, when, when I was going through medical school training and residency, I thought that I was gonna be a gastroenterologist. That was the, because because there were a few of the, the tropes that I really liked, like this idea that you're basically playing video games in someone's butthole. Like <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't want that? That right. was my mind, right? And I thought, oh, these guys must be funny because they're dealing with butts all day. They mm -hmm. must be hilarious. And this is just, I like, you know, and, and the intellectual stuff was there. I did like the physiology, but what I really kind of secretly liked was that you could sit down with someone with irritable bowel syndrome or psychogenic stomach pain mm. and spend time with them and really connect with them. I really like that. So then I go do the rotation and I realize, oh, the stuff that I like, that connection and the video game in the buttocks, that's actually not, the video game gets really old when you've played it a hundred times and you win every, every I time. I know the Pac-Man pattern by now. Exactly. The polyp comes out, <laughs> right. the ghost disappears. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and 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 then the spending time with the patient thing, that was not a thing because you would just be like, yeah, okay, uh, psych referral or go back to your primary doctor or whatever mm. it is. Because the time pressure was there. The best GI docs could could crack it, but I, I knew I, I, I didn't have it in me. And I realized that genre is not right. Now I've never thought of it as a genre, but I knew it wasn't right. Like mm -hmm. write me wrong genre. And so I had to keep, I had to keep looking. So for people then, they would have to just be aware that, you know what, sometimes you're just in the wrong genre. I think you need to be willing to really look at yourself in an objective way. Mm. And we aren't generally fans of that. We're not designed to do it. No, we mm. wanna look in a self-aggrandizing way. We wanna justify, like you ask yourself, why did I choose this career path? And, and then yourself looks back and goes, <laughs> hey asshole, like why do I have to defend myself to you? It's because right. it's a great career. When the ego goes to war with the ego, nobody wins. Cause right. that's what happens, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and that, listen, that's a key point to triple down on because that's why you need some supporting characters. Maybe you need a loved one or a friend or someone who you trust to reflect back to you and show you yourself clearly, mm -hmm. ask you the difficult questions. Um, an example would be when, for me, because again, it's all about me. Of course. Yes. Um, this is you my... should just name this show after yourself. You know what? The Z-Dog MD show. That's I like perfect. That idea. I like that idea mm -hmm. too. We should do that. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. So my, when, when, I, when, I, uh, when my clinic in Las Vegas closed, because we were very early in Las Vegas, and it's, what's funny is our partners that we were running the clinic with just basically merged with one medical in a $2 billion deal. Mm -hmm. So they're quite successful, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, but of course I was like, oh, I should have just stayed for another three. <laughs> but it wasn't me, it wasn't me anymore. So we closed that clinic. I told my wife, I said, you know, I think now's the time 
that I really do what I know that I'm meant to do right now, which is this Z-Dog show. Like I'm gonna interview people, I'm gonna try to change medicine by talking about things that matter and making these connections. And she sat, we were having lunch and she looked me in the eye and she said, so is there a chance that you're just delusional? Yeah. Like you really need to ask that question because we have to support the family. There's mm -hmm. a mortgage, there's all this stuff. We moved to Vegas to do your clinic. The clinic's now closed. Like, like what, what what's going on? And it, it, like that kind of statement will stop your mind right away. And because it's her, if it were anyone else, I would've been like, you're delusional. It's my wife who I trust. Ideal reader. Ideal, uh, we're gonna talk about that's perfect. The <laughs> ideal reader is my wife. So I say, actually she's not, she's close to the ideal reader, but we'll talk about it. She reflects back and I stop my mind and go, could it be that I'm delusional? Mm -hmm. Could I have a self-inflated ego that I think I can do like Joe Rogan's job for medicine? Do, 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 am I so insane to think I'll somehow make a living doing this? Is, is this actually compatible with who I am or am I looking for some validity? I have to ask all those questions in an instant. And I did, I introspected honestly. And I told her, I said, I don't think so. And I'll know that if it's not working and we'll do something else, but I really don't think so. Mm -hmm. And I needed that. Otherwise, how will you ever get that check on what you're doing, right? Yeah. So, so please back to you, because you said ideal reader, which I think is crucial. Okay, so ideal reader, keeping in mind that uh, I, I have to, I have to, you know, in the in the book, I've, th I've thought it all out and I have to remember that I have to make some of these connections to things. Which by the way, I, I'll interrupt you for a second. Yes. You and I share this thing where we, and you've written about this, where we create, we, we try to rip a hole in mm -hmm. the now moment and out comes stuff. And we're not authoring that stuff. It's just coming out. Oh, I got the, a whole bunch of stuff on that. Maybe yeah, that so may that's be another episode. That's another episode. Yeah. But yeah. when you talk about like, oh, I'm trying to remember the book, it's not so much that you're re remembering as you're recreate, you're rechanneling the space that because I can feel it when you do it because I've read the book and when you come out and talk about it, it's a totally different energy of what's coming out. So yeah, back to you, author. Yeah, the. Um, well, the ideal reader is a concept that I first heard with Stephen King. I don't know that he originated it, but it, it sounds like a Stephen King sort of thing um, from his book on writing and do credit to whoever else. It wasn't King first. He refers to this idea of an ideal reader and, and you know, look for the, 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 the crossover here to like real life and rather than real, re, sorry, real uh, ideal reader, it's like ideal, you know, how are you living your life? So basically if you, if you're an author, which I am, and you try to please everybody, mm. then um, you're going to be totally unsuccessful. First of all, you can't please everybody. And second, even if you could, the only way that you could do it is by making what you have so incredibly non-distinct, no unique voice, that it would be so bland, it would be like baby food. Yeah. If you're going to please everybody, it has to be, you end up pleasing nobody. And so, you know, I'm sure we've all kind of had the concept, heard the concept of basically to refine your message and you kind of, Derek Sivers has this concept of proud, to proudly alienate the people who don't go along with you yes. proudly. Yes, 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 yes. And, and I know, I mean, you you, have, you say some divisive stuff. I know that that isn't a lesson that you need, that you proudly alienate those people. <laughs> but it, rather than trying to please everybody, King suggests thinking of one person, alive, dead, mentor, family member, somebody in your life who you want to please, not in a, um, I need to please daddy to, you know, merit being his son sort of way, but in a, um, their opinion matters most to you. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm writing, it's usually my wife, Robin, is usually my ideal reader for my literal books. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, it's me, but yeah. your ideal reader, reader can't, can't be, you. be you. Yeah, it's, it's gotta be somebody yeah. else. Yeah. So 
if if she I mean she doesn't like 100% of my books but she does like 90% of them and that, and that's I've I have a 90% hit rate. Uh-huh. Now I'm not going to not write something because she isn't going to like it but it is a pretty good compass for me. Yeah. So your ideal reader is the person who you are trying to direct most again keeping the with with my example of a book I'm trying to hit her as the center of the bullseye. Yeah. There will be people in outer rings who will be really interested somewhat interested and a bunch of people who are like, oh, I'll check that out. And then outside of that are people that you just don't even worry about because they're not on your your radar. Mm. But having that one person in mind that you're shooting for gives you something to, it gives you a quick litmus. Well, do I do that or not? Do I make this joke or not? Well, I, I just have to ask whether my ideal reader would think it's funny or think that it's interesting or think it's clever. So in your real life, Rather than most of us go around trying to please everybody, right. we try to please our bosses at work. We try to please our spouses and our kids and our our in-laws and our parents and everybody. We try to please socially. I mean, with social media, this is more of a problem than ever. We're trying to please everybody. You know, oh, my, the, my this post on Instagram didn't get as much likes as that one before, <laughs> so I guess I better do something better. And that scattershot you end up all over the place and you have this diluted message that nobody really gets all of you because you're trying to please everybody. You're, you're multi-faced, you're, you're- Inauthentic. You're inauthentic. inauthentic. You're yeah. choosing not to say your deepest truth. Right. But if you have an ideal reader in mind, and, and in my life, I would say that Robin is, again, that. When I'm not talking about books anymore, I'm making my decisions largely on the basis of, not that she controls me, not that I'm doing it in, in like I said, in that, that, that sort of like, somebody determines, somebody just takes the reins of you, twists you. That's not what this is. This is more of like, who do you, whose opinion really matters, matters to you? To you yeah. Like like consciously, not reactively, not, right. not for, out of a place of fear. And so mm. doing, if you do that, then you're telling, it's real easy. Well, so should I be, you know, this, this career requires me to have this kind of hard charging jerk personality. Is my ideal reader going to be cool with that? Mm. Because maybe not, mm. and maybe you're you're maybe you're trying to get you're trying to get something through means that doesn't make sense to get them because you're not focused enough on why you want it and who you're trying to please. This this idea of an ideal reader is absolutely crucial, by the way, because especially when you do something that um, does require, like you you are trying to connect with people. Like for example, when I think about my, it, after reading your book, I, I had to think what, who is my ideal reader? And it became very clear, very fast. Well, on everything that isn't what I do, it's my wife mm-hmm. because she doesn't watch the show. She doesn't like the show. This is not her thing. She can't understand social media. She doesn't like it. She's a teacher at Stanford and a radiologist and that's her thing, but she's also really good at life. So anything involving life relationships, people that I'm hanging out with, even meditation and stuff. She doesn't do that, but she can feel people out. She's my ideal reader. But on what I do, my ideal reader is my supporter group, the people who pay the five bucks a month to be part of the thing. They are not there because of algorithms and all of that. They're there because they feel drawn to whatever it is we're doing, this alt middle sense making, spirituality meets medicine meets trying to make sense of the world. And if I pitch something to them and they say, meh, chances are I'm not gonna do it. Mm-hmm. If I pitch something to them and they're like, this is the most amazing thing, the chances are I'm gonna start throwing resources into it. And that's a huge value. And they know, they know they have that effect because I'll tell them. I'll that's go, a wonderful example, actually, mm-hmm. because you are in a position since you are kind of 
you know, you're kind of split-brained on this. You're going in the COVID Z-Dog medical direction, and you're going in the kind of opposite direction. Yeah. Not opposite, but but different. Different, yeah. And so I can imagine you you kind of, and, and especially since the COVID ones are going to be more popular, they're, they're going to be more successful for your business. And so how do you make that choice? Well, it's, and it is interesting because if I put out a COVID piece, like, look, it's, I have a lot to say about COVID. There's no doubt about it. But I don't want to say it unless I think it's actually going to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. Most of what I can say about COVID will get a butt ton of engagement and views and generate ad revenue and do a, it's business-wise, great decision. If, if I had a business manager, they'd be like, every single day, do a COVID piece. Like Z-Dog reacts to latest FDA yeah. and it would crush and that would be great. And I'd be like these other guys online that are doing it very successfully and, and, that, and they're passionate about it, it's what they do. But if I'm being honest, my ideal reader is somebody who cares about the nature of reality, making sense, healing division, building a corpus callosum between two hemispheres that are competing, like the reductionist hemisphere and the holistic hemisphere and trying mm. to, trying to, and we can talk about that, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Um, Ian McGillchrist rabbit hole because, oh, you would love this guy. Anyways, that's a whole nother subject. I will love this guy. You will because I'll, yes. And um, because you're my ideal reader. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you are, you are. I just oh had the god. epiphany. Oh my god! It's perfect. We're each other's ideal. I reader. should be getting a salary. We are each other's ideal readers, actually. That's because, probably true. Actually, because when you send me something you've written, you're like, "Check this out," and I read it. I'm like, "Where has this been all my life? This is this is amazing." Uh, like Story Solution was like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the stuff that I really care about, like the awareness, awakening, consciousness, sense making stuff, you're like, dude. I wait for the next Angelo DeLulo video to come out right now. Mm -hmm. Those videos get like 6,000 views compared to uh, 600,000 views, right? Yeah. But my ideal reader is into that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why they're my ideal reader. So, how, but how do you reconcile like business success and those kind of external valid validatory successes and following your actual authentic self on this stuff. I, I just think it, it requires being really, really clear with what it is that you actually want at base. Mm. And, and most people don't go deep enough. It's kind of like the variant of um, what am I really afraid of, right? Like that's mm. the negative one. We all know that. Like, okay, so I'm not going to get this report done on time. Well, then what would happen? Well, then I wouldn't make the money. Well, then what would happen? And if you go down, I mean, we've seen this cliche, you go all the way down. Well, then nobody will love me, right? It yeah. ends up being something like that. The then I will, I will not be worth anything. Repressed uh, emotional yeah. undercurrent of it, yeah. And so to me, this is, a, this is a positive version of that. It's like, what do you, what do you ultimately really want? Um, you're actually a really good story solution trajectory person, actually, because like, I don't know if you were reading this, if you were like mapping yourself to it. Oh yeah. But I mean, you took a leap, like th that schism, that's the thing. If, if there's a big jump in somebody's life where something changes dramatically, that's one of the most destabilizing things. And people just go, oh shit, my head's exploding. Yeah. I feel like right now you're gonna use this graphic because I've seen how you <laughs> use that's graphics. That's your thumbnail, right? yeah. It's gonna be, and then, you know, mind blown. Um, <laughs> what was I saying before I got into the graphic? You were saying um, uh, when you get a destabilizing event in your life, a big yeah, change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is, um, it, it feels bad. Like it feels yeah. like, oh man, that feels terrible. When I was going through this fruit fly thing, that was not oh, it must fun. Have been horrible. Yeah. It was scary as hell. Yeah. But then when you realize that that was my act one climax and you're choosing, the act one climax is marked by the protagonist be facing a challenge and choosing to go on a journey, not being forced on a journey. They mm. have to choose it, mm. knowing full well what risks they're taking. So it is inherently a destabilizing, unpleasant event. It never looks that way in the movies because we then go on to act two and it's there's explosions. 
Right, like Luke Skywalker's uh, aunt and uncle get killed by stormtroopers. Right. End of Act One, he's got to go. He's going to decides I'm going with you, Ben. I have and, nothing. And here. he wanted to go to Tashi Station to get power converters. Get power converters and hang out with Wedge. Just one more season, and he could go to the academy. So he's disappointed. You yeah. know, like he was bummed. If he was sitting there, if he had the story solution, he'd be like, "Oh my God, it's just Act One." And now I get to move on. And and the whole of Star Wars, that episode four was act one for the original trilogy too. That's true. I mean, at some point he's going to end up making out with his sister, which again, hashtag goals. Yeah, you. that's right. <laughs> and he wouldn't have been able to do that if the events hadn't unfolded just right. That's right. Um, but one of the things that I think is, is we kind of skim past this, but I think that this is important is if you, you make one decision and there's a bunch of dominoes that fall behind it. Mm. So- um, I talked about about this in a little bit in the book, is that a genre decision implies a whole bunch of other decisions or a plot-based decision implies a bunch of other decisions that you just accept. Mm. You don't even stop and think. So, I mean, I should have known going into getting a PhD was going to be a lot of nose-down work, which I guess I thought I was okay with. All I could see was the the the, the coins, the, the gold coins the I was yeah. grasping at. I didn't see that it was going to require a certain type of personality. Mm. It was going to require a certain schedule. It was going to uh, paint everything with a, that patina of that that like serious, overly serious in my mind genre. Um, it was it was it was going to change a little bit of who I was to some degree. Um, you know, when I came home at night and I was like stressed out because you know I had to go back in on Saturday and it was an hour train ride each way and I don't want to do it and. You know, that's a decision you're making about, that's a tone decision. You know, tone is how a story is told. Mm. See, you could, I could have told that same story in an upbeat way, but I would have been selling it in a downbeat way. I would have been, mm. I would have been experiencing it because I made that decision without thinking about what are the other things that come with it. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I talked about in the book too was the fit between an ideal character arc, um, not fit, the requirement, the fact that in a, a character arc and a character who mm. is perfect for that arc are like hairs in a braid. Mm. So the example I gave was was uh, Breaking Bad. Right. So the plot of Breaking Bad, high school teacher, I mean, uh, Vince Gilligan has described it, Mr. Chips becomes Scarface. And so like you can imagine, okay, I got that. You know, you can imagine an everyday person going and making meth, but without Walter White, without it happening to that character, the events would have unfolded entirely different. If that, if those series of events had happened to Pablo Escobar, you'd get Narcos. Right. If those, if those things had happened to, I can't think of another example, but it would have ended up being something entirely different. Right. And conversely, Han Solo, young Solo, he would have ended up. It would have been Solo. He would have been selling yeah. meth. Right. That's Wh right. Which, I mean, they probably I, were anyway. Listen, I've been from one end of this galaxy to the other, and I never seen blue meth that gets me as high as that. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. If I'm going to pick one kind of meth, mm -hmm. that's my kind of meth. That totally just indigo. Yeah, kind blue. of a purist. Me too. Like I want to see that that the spike on the gas chromatograph. It's like ninety nine point nine. I was just going to say, you and I both had to do OCHEM to do what we did, yeah. and I, I'll say this: like, there's nothing purer than that blue stuff. Whew, yeah, man, I could go for some of that right now. Me too. Don't break it. You out. know what? Let's just call the code right now. We'll go down the street. I know a great guy. Call the code like heart stoppage. Exactly. Like, well, in medicine, when we say call the code, it's like, okay, we're no longer doing CPR because this is a losing battle. We're right. just going to call it you know, time of death. X. Both y, of our Z. careers. Let's just go become junkies. What do you, you know? Think? What? What do you mean become? 
First Just of all, I take that it. personally. Embrace, embrace it. it. Embrace it. That's the narrative. Anyways, we got derailed. <laughs> we did. We did. It's like the taint thing. It is the so taint the, thing. Um, so, so, but conversely, if if you took Walter White and you gave him any other set of uh, of circumstances, you wouldn't have ended up with Breaking Bad. Right. It took. I mean, most of so. I, sorry, spoiler break. Breaking Bad for everybody. Spoiling Go a really popular TV show from a while ago. But there's a moment, and it's it's pretty early on. I want to say it's like season two, the end of season two, something like that. Where if you haven't seen the show, ha, uh, the main character is Walter White, played by Brian Cranston. It's one of my favorite shows. From Malcolm in the Middle, in case you were wondering. And, and I had seen Malcolm in the Middle first, and so yes. I, it took me a while me to too, accept to adjust. him as Walter White. Although, Although him at in the his, beginning, in his tidy whities he was right he there. He was very. I think there's a clause where he wanted to show his butt as much as possible, and he did it. His butt was in like half the episode. Exactly. That's why I love the, the I show. Know. Honestly, that yeah. I, the only thing I love more is Crystal Blue Math. Oh yeah, I mean, you a know little what? Bit of that crystal blue persuasion. Just a little, yeah. Snorted, <laughs> not stirred. Yeah. But in that episode, he he has a brother-in-law, Hank, who um, thinks that he's solved the case. Like he thinks we got Heisenberg. Heisenberg is is Walter White's alter ego that's making the math, and they are done. He works for the DEA. We're done. We got Heisenberg. Case closed. And Walt is at dinner with him because he doesn't know that that Walt is Heisenberg, and he's like, I don't think he's your guy. And he opens it. The rest of the show happens because Walter cast doubt on Hank's conclusion. Why? Because of pride. Pride. He's incredibly prideful. The first episode, you learn that he's just shit on by his students at school. His boss doesn't respect him. His wife doesn't respect him. He's working at a car wash to pay the bills. He worked at this great company and got out too early. Now they're really successful and he's this, you know, schlub. And so he wants, I mean, his everything is driven around, they'd better attribute my great meth to me and they'd better not attribute anyone else's shitty meth to me. Yeah. And so his pride is like only that combination of plot and that specific character. So you need to think about those things too. What is the plot you're trying to build and what character maximizes that plot that you need to be? Man, it gets deep. It does. It gets deep, but that's life. That's life. You said something mm -hmm. earlier I want to follow up on. You said, um, I happen to think life is just a story anyways. Or mm -hmm. yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, this is going down the Angelo DeLulo path, but the number of times that, well, this is a question of how woo we want to get and how many people <laughs> tune out. But it just seems like, um, I, I don't know, I've just noticed a little bit too much serendipity, but serendipity is the sort of thing that you need to be on the lookout for. Yeah. I think a lot of people miss- I call it return on luck. Yeah, just open to this. Yeah, yeah. I actually made this uh, this case with my son when he was much younger because he would always go to pay phones and vending machines and check the coin slot. It was just a thing he did, but the kid found so much money. I mean, for a kid, <laughs> and and so I used that as kind of a teachable moment with him when I was talking to him at the time, and I said, "It's not that you're lucky. No one else is looking for those coins. Yeah. You know, you miss a hundred percent of the coins that you don't look down to see you're stepping right past." And so retuning to look for those serendipitous moments, I, I mean, maybe this is Pollyanna, but you tend to find them more. Yep. And so I notice that the more I tune into that, maybe this does cross over with some of the awakening stuff, is the more that it seems like that story, I'm, I'm already wanting to go into the one where I talk about how stories already exist out there, but I feel like my story too kind of exists and I'm, I'm I'm pulling, I'm finding it. I'm discovering it as I go. You're pulling it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a, that we got to talk about that in another episode because that is a yeah. whole thing in itself. That's a metaphysical thing that I think is not metaphysical. I think it's actually real world applicable, like opening yourself to these synchronicities mm -hmm. and forget about, you know, are they, 
what's the nature of them? It's more they they exist when you look. Like you said, if mm-hmm. you're looking in in the payphones for the for the coins, you'll find them. If you don't look, you never will. And uh, I found that the more I opened to that, the more these interesting synchronicities seem to happen. For example, like you and I connecting and doing a show that I think will help a lot of people to wake up to their own story. Okay, so that's a great example. So I think that this is very serendipitous too, but it didn't happen randomly. It happened because I listened to something that you did and I had a hunch that I then obeyed. Yes. So if I had not listened to what, I'm trying to get much more conscious of listening to the things that just pop up in my head. Mm. And I heard you talking to Bernardo about how you know 10 people are gonna like this one. And I said, I should send him an email. And th- very easily, I mean, I was at a, my, one of my daughter's volleyball tournaments. I wasn't at home. I was like walking to get some exercise while she was not actually playing. So it wasn't easy for me to send an email. Like I had to do it with my thumbs on my smartphone, but it just, it felt like I should do it. And I did. And so that's the equivalent of looking in the coin slots. Man. And you know what's crazy? There's the serendipitous interaction of of two people who were looking for return on luck there. So you did that. You used you 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 exceeded the activation energy of sending that email, which was higher than it would have been because you're on a phone and you're out and doing your thing. Mm-hmm. So you actually recognized in intuitively in your uh, you know kind of whatever hole you've opened in the universe. You're like, ah, I got to email this guy, and you did. I get 500 emails a week. 2000 on heavy, if I, if I say mm. something that then gets you to emails, <clears throat> I'm used to quickly intuiting what an email is about because it's pattern recognition mm-hmm. at some point. Your email immediately kind of screamed at me. You know, I was like, wait, no, there's something going on here. Like this guy is really connected to the same thing that I'm connected mm. to in this. And it came, it became clear. And I think I responded, but I responded kind of cautiously because mm-hmm. I, like I get, I, I miss I get it. it. I, I get burned. I'm like, wait, I don't know what this is. And then immediately I was like, oh, no, th- uh, what, 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 what? Yeah, wow. And then I listened to Story Solution mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah. And again, is that synchronicity, serendipity? Is the story written and we're uncovering it? Is it us, uh, something in our will that's free will that's determining how we're behaving in the world? <laughs> I don't know the answer. I feel like we're unearthing reality in the present moment, but that's, that's the next. Well, show. let me give you. Let me give you. A, a, so I have. I feel like next next time we do this, I need to have like post its because I make notes as I go. <laughs> so let me give you a little bit of background on that. So um, I'm very aware of that you have a popular YouTube channel. I knew you got a lot of email, but I was connecting with something that was I didn't assume. Okay, let me see if I can articulate this. It's clear to me. I don't know if it's clear to other people how much passion you have when you interview the people that I'm most interested in hearing you interview. Mm. It's clear to me. It's clear that although you you do have passion about any of the medical stuff that you do, it's a different vibe. Yeah. And so I did not say, hey, Z-Dog, you're cool. <laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I addressed what I felt we had in common. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I purposely, I mean, that was, this, this is, I guess what I'm saying is so much of the story solution stuff is knowing your goal and knowing what you're actually doing. And so I did, not only did I heed the call to approach you, I did notice that, but I did it in a very specific way with the the passion project that I knew that you had. So another example is when I was, uh, it was probably 15, 20 years ago, um, James Gunn, the the author, the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy, has done a bunch of Marvel stuff, like people I think know James Gunn. Um, he wrote a book called The Toy Collector. 
Nobody knows he wrote this book. I think it's the only fiction he's ever written. Hmm. I could be wrong. Um, but I could tell that there was some heart there. Yeah. And uh, I sent him a, at the time an actual letter because it was a little before email. And, he, and he, he wasn't as big as he is now, but he did reply because it was like I spoke to that thing that was passionate to him. Mm. Um, Scott Adams, the founder of Dilbert. And it sounds like I'm kind of a star fucker here. I'm not really. Um, <laughs> but I did. He wrote a book called God's Debris. that mm. was like philosophy. I don't know if you've run across it. I haven't, but I know Scott quite well. We're actually connected. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Well, so he wrote that book and I thought it was really interesting. My second major is philosophy. And so I just again, I was like, I'm just I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot him an email. He's the creator of Dilbert. Like he's going to get 50,000 emails. But how many of them are talking about this one thing that was important to me? Mm. And I think that when you do that, then if there is a sincere connection to be had- It will manifest. It will manifest. Absolutely. Because what you could drill into into those communiques is the authenticity of the passion underlying it. Mm -hmm. And if it's clearly articulated, then you, you immediately, those are the emails I answer. Honestly, those and like occasional questions that I know I can help. Like I know I can talk this person around their concerns around X, Y, or Z with COVID or vaccine or whatever. But the ones that are like, hey, you know, I'm, I love what you did with it. So Angelo's original email to me, cause like nobody, you know, he, he's an anesthesiologist in Colorado mm -hmm. and he emails me and he's like, hey, here's what we have in common, Doc Vader. I love your character, Doc Vader. Like it makes me laugh, I'm an anesthesiologist. Anyways, I noticed you're doing these things on consciousness like Hoffman and Kastrup, same, same basic vibe. Mm -hmm. I'm writing this book, here's the intro. If you like the intro, I'll send you the rest. And I was like, well, this is intriguing. And the minute I read like, you know, 10 lines into the intro, I was like, send me the rest like all caps, just send me the rest. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how those things happen. But again, it's like opening yourself to the story in a way, because so many of us are like, we're locked into a certain way of a certain genre or a certain way of thinking or our story's written and there's nothing else that's gonna perturb it, mm -hmm. right? I think that openness, not everybody has that as a personality trait, but I think it can be cultivated to a degree because it, it really is in our interest. Like our right brain really functions to look for new things and opportunity and novelty and whether it's threat or whether it's opportunity. Mm -hmm. Our left brain is more like reduced everything to parts, certainty, grasping. That's why it runs our, for most people are right-handed, our right side. It's grasping, it's writing, it's like trying to reduce things, but the right is looking constantly. And actually McGilchrist has written about this in animals that where the eyes are separated. You know, they're not binaural like mm -hmm. this. The, the right side, controls the left eye or left visual field, that side is often looking holistically hmm. at the big picture. Whereas the other side is looking to grasp or to point or to break down. And I think when we open ourselves to this return on serendipity or synchronicity, we're allowing our right brain to really run the show instead of being enslaved to the left, which increasingly in society, we're left brain enslaved. Mm -hmm. Like we wanna, and the left brain loves to be right. It always thinks it's right. It is, uh, its predominant emotion is anger and righteous indignation. <laughs> like Ego protective. Ego protective, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and again, that's a little reductionist in terms of how these things work, but I, I think it's a it's a good point. So I think we should probably, for this show, because we've gone about an hour and a half-ish. Oh my God. Yeah, I know, crazy, right? Yeah. That's what happens. Time flies when you're on the Z-Dog show. I mean, yeah. dude, so speaking of flies, to bring it full circle, yes. both of you and I worked in fruit fly labs. Our PI, our pr principal investigator of our lab, James Fristrom, who was a, a real role, role model in my life. Again, like, I, I've, and this goes into the story solution. Even when you're living a story that maybe isn't quite the right fit, that story is part of your story. Yes. It is permanently part of your story and you should 
own it, never have the regret and all of that because you can't, there's only this, it's just happening and you can't change past, past not even a real thing. Um, he had a t-shirt when we left the lab that said, time's fun when you're having flies. And it had pictures of fruit <laughs> flies. And I think this was a lot of fun. Uh, For sure. So I'm, what I'm gonna do is, let me see. So your book, Story Solution, I'm gonna put a link to the Amazon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have it on most of the bookstores. I know it's available in paperback. Um, it's definitely available it's definitely on available Audible. It's definitely available on Audible. I mean, honestly, like I, I, I do want to say like I'm, it'd be great if, if people got the books, but I'm, I'm actually not here to sell books. And actually I have to double down on this. Like, yeah. it was like, I'll tell you direct to the camera, it was like pulling teeth to get me to pitch his book. I'm like, I'd like to get people to read this book. He's like, yeah, but I really don't. That's not why I'm here. Yeah. And I'm like, no, but I want people to read your book. <laughs> so that's why I'm gonna link it. And the to logical it. extreme of that is, well, hey, Johnny, if you don't actually care, then make it free. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But uh, I'll look at, look at that camera. Yeah, go, yeah sorry, go. I'm just yeah. not gonna do that. No, yeah, exactly. Um, but but I mean, if I could, maybe this is a good closing note or maybe like now I'm, I'm opening it back up. So I apologize if I am, but I just, I think it's easy to, because this has been relatively um, like tangible stuff. You know, yeah. like this has been relatively, there hasn't been a lot of too woo stuff, but if you're thinking about the synchronicity of the stuff that we ended with, and if that bugs you, then I just want everyone to remember that there are 5 billion things happening at any moment. The brain is not really a tool for homing in as much as it's a tool for deleting everything else. Mm. And we notice the things that we're focused on, focused on. You know, if it's reductionist, it's that reticular activating system that says watch for blue Toyotas, right? Yeah. And so the serendipitous choices are always out there if you select those instead of the other ones that you're doing by default. So like me connecting with you, that required me to find I mean, if it wasn't you, maybe it would have been somebody else. Like I, I found you out of a lot of YouTube videos that I've watched. It's not like I watched one YouTube video and made a connection. And it, like, there was a lot of stuff that didn't happen. And so if it feels like, okay, well now they're talking about luck and serendipity and cosmic guidance or whatever, it's mm. it's not really, you're just making a different choice. Yeah, you're, right. you're tuning to something else and making a different choice. You're channeling the story as it's coming and it's yeah. going in a certain way because you can't have all the possibilities. Can't have all. It has to collapse into a choice. I love it, brother. Nice. This was so much fun. So I think we'll do a follow-up on this on uh, nice. some of the more woo-woo stuff because yeah. I, I, or actually more about creativity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Be you want to go get some meth while we're waiting? I or? think I have a guy. Okay. Now, well, I hear me out. one guy. He's not Walter White, but he has the same tidy whities he oh. wears them as a kind of a tribute. You know, like um, the Hunger Games, like I, I offer this meth as tribute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. we'll find him. And then for those of you who don't smoke meth um, or snort it, or I, can you inject meth? I don't even know. I don't know. I mean, I am a meth aficionado, but I don't know that one. But I'm more of like, I like to- Purist. A purist. Yeah. A purist. Yeah. I'm snob. not going to skin pop it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because that you get those lesions. I don't want to lose my teeth and stuff. I mean, most of my teeth are fake. They're made of um, platinum. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the links are below. <laughs> um, Johnny B. Truant, thank you, brother, for yeah, coming on the show. Yeah, man. It's so great, glad great you, being on. Great being we on. got the return on luck on this one. Of course, and, uh, for sure. Guys, if you, if you like this kind of content, you can join that ideal readers group of mine, the supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And uh, if you um, really like what we do, uh, Join us and then be a part of that conversation that helps me determine what we put out in the world. All right, guys, I love you and we are out. Thanks, brother. All right. 
Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.